Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. May 12th, I was impressed with Eddie Ochiai's performance in Double Bind. She becomes another person when the camera is rolling. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Excuse me, who are you? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 191, Perfect Blue. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always a huge hi, welcome and or welcome back. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, welcome to Verbal Diorama. If you are a regular returning listener, welcome back to Verbal Diorama. Either way, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast because... This is going to be a really interesting and enlightening and super fun episode on the history and legacy of Perfect Blue. And this episode is the fifth episode of Animation Season 2023. It follows movies that are nothing like Perfect Blue, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, Inside Out, South Park, Big and Longer and Uncut, and The Emperor's New Groove. And obviously, if you've listened to all or any of those episodes, thank you so much for doing so. That's the reason I do animation season. It's basically for people like you to listen to episodes like that. But if you are wondering why I'm doing animation season just generally, well, let me go through a couple of reasons why I do it every year. So the first thing that often gets levied in animation is that it's dismissed as just for children. Obviously, that's not something that you can level at Perfect Blue for so many reasons. So many reasons this movie is not suitable for children, despite being animated. Additionally, animation is often labelled or mislabeled, shall I say, as a genre. When it's not, it's actually just a medium to tell a story. 
And that story can be of any genre, but there's actually not very many psychological thrillers out there that are animated. And that tends to be what sets a movie like Perfect Blue apart from so many other animated movies and so many other animated movies that have come from Japan. Also, and this is just a bit of a sideline thing, it's just something that I noticed personally that not a lot of movie podcasts actually cover animation on a regular basis unless they are an animation-based movie podcast. So I like to cover as much animation as I possibly can and that's where I do animation season over the months of January and February each year. Usually I do about 10 movies. In previous years I've done 12. This year I'm doing 13 different movies. And obviously you've only had five so far. So there's a lot still yet to come in animation season. So hold on to your hats for that because February is going to be immense. But for now, I mean, this episode is about Perfect Blue. As I said, Perfect Blue is an animated movie that is definitely not for children. And it's not even like South Park, which is a movie that's not for children, but yet still entices children to watch it. No child is going to be interested in watching Perfect Blue. It is not the sort of material that any child is going to be interested in. It is a genuine, terrifying psychological thriller with elements of stalking, rape, murder, depictions of psychosis. This movie is, to all intents and purposes, a serious movie. And it's not often that you find animated movies that cover stuff like this that are mainstream animated movies. And on a side note, because I always like to mention this, whenever I talk about foreign movies, actually, but especially animated foreign movies, is the old subs v dubs debate. Now, me personally, if you are watching a movie like Perfect Blue, I don't care if you watch it subtitled or dubbed. Usually it is better to watch a movie like this subtitled. However, from my point of view, however you want to enjoy and watch a movie like this, just watch the movie. If you prefer dubbing, then watch it dubbed. If you prefer subtitles, watch it subtitled. This is a movie that you need to see, you need to experience. And the more people that watch movies like this, the better, as far as I'm concerned. This is a terrific movie. And let's just jump straight in with the trailer for Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Was a pop star. This is Mima's last performance with Cham. Who desired to become an actress. I really hope that I can entertain you just the same as an actress. But sometimes aspirations can be deadly. I'm always watching Mima's room. In the world of make believe, this is when Mima proves herself. The price of fame. Don't worry, Mima, it'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence is lost. <gasps> Dreams become nightmares. And privacy no longer exists. Where everything you do can be seen by everyone. And those you trust are really those you should fear. Your life 
no longer belongs to you. Excuse me, who are Manga you? Entertainment me, presents you? Satoshi Khan's animated psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Encouraged by her manager, Miba Kirigo, the lead singer of the successful J-pop group Cham, decides to quit her bubblegum pop career to pursue an acting career in the television detective drama Double Boing. However, her risque new image and career change doesn't sit well with the band's admirers, especially an unknown diehard fan who starts posting insidious threats and disturbingly intimate information about Mima's life on the internet. Now, all those who talked Mima into embracing her bad girl persona end up brutally murdered, and a menacing doppelganger harasses her. Is Mima being stalked by a violent killer, or is this strange and dangerous situation a delusion stemming from Mima's psychosis? Let's quickly run through the cast of this movie. I'm just focusing on the Japanese cast for this movie. We have Junko Iwayo as Mima Kirigo, Rika Matsumoto as Rumi, Shinpachi Tsuji as Tadakoro, Masaki Akura as Momoro Uchida, aka Mimania, and Yosuke Akimoto as Tajima. Perfect Blue has a screenplay by Sadayuki Murai, is based on Perfect Blue Complete Metamorphosis by Yoshikazu Takeuchi, and was directed by Satoshi Kon. And when Satoshi Kon passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2010, he was only 46 years of age. But by that point, he'd amassed perfect catalogue of four critically acclaimed feature films and one television series as his lasting legacy. Perfect Blue was his feature-length directorial debut, and it's about as accomplished as the perfect debut can be, with its clear references to Hitchcock, Lynch and Scorsese. Khan had been an assistant to Katsuhira Otomo after starting out as a manga artist in his college years. Otomo, if you're unaware, created Akira, both the original 1982 manga and the 1988 film adaptation, often cited as one of the greatest anime movies ever made. I certainly think so. It's one of my personal favourites. I have done an episode on that. It's episode 28. If you want more information... I don't often start an episode with the untimely death of the director, but I think it's important to mention here that Satoshi Kon wasn't just a director, nor was he just an anime director. He actually set out to make genre-defining animation. He loved the medium of animation so much and is so sorely missed in the world because those four movies, Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers and Paprika and the TV show Paranoia Agent made it clear that he was no Miyazaki. He wanted to do something different, to reference and pay homage to Japanese cinema. Paying homage is something that I'm going to come back to because Hollywood loves to pay homage to Satoshi Kon. The story of Perfect Blue starts, as with every adaptation, with a story. The 1991 novel Perfect Blue Complete Metamorphosis by Yoshikazu Takeuchi and you probably won't be too surprised to find out that it was originally planned to be a live-action film. And this version was planned by the author, Yoshikazu Takeuchi. He took it to a number of production companies and approached the director, Shimako Sato, who'd made Wizard of Darkness and Echo Echo Azaraku to direct it. But funding couldn't be acquired, so it then became a direct-to-video live-action adaptation 
and then a direct-to-video animation or OVA, original video animation. Satoshi Kon had followed Katsuhiro Otomo into the animation industry and had made his directorial debut on the OVA Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, but had previously worked as an animator, layout and background artist, and it was his work on Jojo's Bizarre Adventure that brought him to the attention of Madhouse producer Masayo Maruyama. Madhouse was founded by Maruyama, a film producer, and considered one of the most experienced of the Japanese animation industry. He's responsible for the careers of not only Satoshi Kon, but also Academy Award-nominated director Mamoru Masada, who was originally going to direct Hell's Moving Castle for Studio Ghibli, but left the project due to creative differences. More on that in my episode on Hell's Moving Castle. Maruyama felt that Kon was ideal for Perfect Blue and contacted him to see if he would be interested in directing the OVA in 1994. And because of its subject matter, it was always going to be a bit of an anomaly in Japanese animation because psychological thrillers or horrors weren't mainstream anime and there was no precedent to ascertain whether or not it was actually going to be a hit. It was going to be a 70-minute original video with a budget of 90 million yen. The character designer would be Hisashi Eguchi at the request of the original author, Takayuchi. The schedule was for completion at the end of the following year in 1996, so they scheduled a year for animation. It would actually be completed in the summer of 1997, more than half a year late. Satoshi Kon knew that one year was too short a timescale for a 70-minute film. He knew it took more than half a year to make a 30-minute episode of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. He thought about turning it down because the schedule was too unreasonable and the content didn't suit him but figured he'd take the job until something better came along. And then he got into the ideas surrounding the movie, the psychological horror, a pop idol, the idea of multiple personalities, a play within a play. Satoshi Kon relished the opportunity, but refused to work with the script as it was, which had been written by the original author. Takayuchi agreed to allow Kon to change the plot within limits. Kon realised he could enhance what was there and make a fascinating exploration into not only a genre that was mainstream in live action following smash hits like Basic Instinct, I've also done an episode on that, but also a film within a film, including blurring the lines between reality and dreams. Takayuchi's only stipulations were the movie had to retain a pop idol with a stalker and the plot be rooted in horror. Otherwise, Satoshi Kon was free to reinterpret the movie, and so he searched for a suitable screenwriter singling out Keiko Nobimoto, who was busy and couldn't commit. Then he found Sadayuki Murai and worked closely with him to perfect Perfect Blue. And this theme of what's fantasy and what's reality would become common in his later work too, like Paprika. Another movie, just like this one, that influenced Hollywood directors, but more on that later. Kon took inspiration from Katsuhiro Otomo's anthology film Memories, which contained a short film called Magnetic Rose, which Khan himself had scripted, which contains hallucinations and a manifestation of an AI hologram of a once-famous opera diva, where it's uncertain what's fantasy and what's reality. Satoshi Khan didn't read the original novel The Perfect Blue, just a rough plot, and kept the title of the original novel thinking the words Perfect Blue had some significance, but in reality the film has little in common with its source material, so if you were thinking of picking up a copy of the novel to compare, don't expect it to be the same. Due to the delay in character design, it wasn't until April that Satoshi Kon actually started storyboarding. 
And he did about 40 to 50 cuts, roughly drawing to create a flow while making a clean copy, composition, camera movements, detailed play contents and pauses, character faces and costumes without settings, stage settings without setting, and the animation was done in parallel with the storyboarding. Satoshi Kon actually had no experience on websites before making Perfect Blue. In fact, it was making Perfect Blue that encouraged him to set up his own website to diarise the production. A website which still exists in the form of a fan site which contains Con's diary entries. It's all in Japanese, but Google can translate it for you. And I will pop a link in the show notes for anyone interested in taking a look. And no, it's not called Satoshi's Room, although it probably should be. And I'm hoping that if you are listening to this episode that you have seen Perfect Blue, because this is a movie that you really don't want to go into spoiled if you can help it. So I will say, if you have not seen Perfect Blue, then please go and watch Perfect Blue and come back because you really need to watch the movie. But it is obviously the story of a young woman struggling with what she and the audience perceive to be a multiple personality disorder juxtaposed with her as an actress playing a part in a TV show. And that means it's very easy for the movie to switch between these realities and for them to be virtually indistinguishable from each other until the movie makes it clear where we are, or doesn't make it clear. The genius behind this is the editor Harutoshi Ogata, who uses cutting through action or fast edits to confuse the viewer into what life they're currently watching. This is achieved by blending into each scene using turns, falls, jumps, and so the transition feels seamless, but adds to the disconcerting feel of questioning what's actually going on. It's why psychological horror is called psychological horror, because Satoshi Kon is cleverly expecting the viewer to fill in the blanks and imagine the worst-case scenario. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why Darren Aronofsky was so inspired to recreate certain key scenes. I am going to be coming back to Darren Aronofsky a little bit later. And the backdrop of J-pop and the industry surrounding them, fan expectations and extreme cases like stalking, was obvious following the J-pop boom of the 90s and the agencies cultivating hot new Japanese pop idols. J-pop hit its peak between 1997 and 1999, and the most popular solo J-pop star being Ayumi Hamazaki. This obviously leads quite nicely into the popularity of K-pop in the 2000s, and the reason pretty much everyone now knows who BTS are. These are perfectly cultivated pop stars, given training on not just singing and dancing, but how to be a pop star, how to use social media, how to dress, how to appeal to your fan base. And I'll let you in to a little podcaster secret, certainly a verbal diorama secret, if not relevant to other podcasters too. The persona that you hear on verbal diorama is very much me. I say what I think and what I believe, but it's also a cultivated version of me. It's not quite as polished to perfection as Mima Kirigo, but there is still a public persona, the verbal diorama personality, so to speak, and the real me. Now, the real me and the verbal diorama me, they're not actually all that different. Except I do swear in real life and I don't swear on here. If you think about it, it's actually the perfect example of the public persona versus a private persona. And Perfect Blue taps into the societal obsession we have over celebrity and how isolating that celebrity can become. Not suggesting I'm a celebrity. But you know what I mean. Take someone like Britney Spears as a great example. If you've been a fan of Britney for two decades, as we all are because she's incredible, you might think you know the real Britney. You might follow her on Instagram, 
be obsessed with her music, but you're never going to know the real Britney unless you know the real Britney. Perfect Blue predicted our growing obsession with celebrity and Khan also broached the growing concerns around otaku. And that means the young people who are infatuated with a particular aspect of pop culture and how their obsessions could only be fed by the access that the internet provided and how that anonymous online space could be used to harass people, especially women. And otaku and the celebrity culture surrounding it may be tabloid fodder for the West, but in Japan it is treated with quite a level of severity and it does have a negative perception associated to it mostly due to the quote-unquote otaku murderer, Sotomo Miyazaki. He was a serial killer who murdered four young girls aged between four and seven between 1988 and 1989. Now, I'm not a true crime podcast, so I'm not going to go into the case. The information is on the internet if you wish to look it up. I would recommend you don't because it's incredibly disturbing and upsetting. But not only did he abduct and murder four innocent young girls in a violent, brutal and disgusting way, he was dubbed the otaku murderer due to his extensive collection of horror and slasher films and pornography, and specifically an anime and manga collection. Generally, it was perceived that that had persuaded him to become a murderer and that otaku was responsible for him retreating into a fantasy world and becoming perverse. Now, there have been multiple studies on whether media turns someone violent who's not predisposed to violence. And most agree that watching a violent movie does not make you want to enact that violence in real life. Miyazaki was executed by hanging in 2008, but the moral panic that occurred after reports of his extreme otaku behaviour gave the premise of being an obsessed fan more of a negative connotation than it does have in the West. And keyboard warriors are nothing new, nor is the premise that you can be anyone on the internet. We've all seen Catfish, but Perfect Blue came out right at the start of the internet revolution, just as people were getting home access to the internet via dial-up modems, remember then, just as message boards and chat rooms started becoming popular, and even in 1997, we were still commodifying women, judging them for their choices, what they did with their own bodies just as people are still doing today. Brittany is another great example of that. I promise to not continue referencing her in this episode. It's not just a male obsession either, because all genders comment on women's bodies. You're either too fat, too thin. Actually, I think Brittany mentioned that in one of her songs, but I'm not going to mention Brittany again. But there's this presumed ownership that fans have over certain bodies or certain bodies of work. Star Wars is a great example too. Satoshi Kon saw the issues with J-pop fanaticism and considered how the internet would only serve to fuel it. When you look at the current K-pop phenomenon, BTS, not much has changed. The group is adored all over the world, thanks to an army of fervent followers, and they demand access to every part of their existence. They've developed into a content-creating machine fueled by Twitter, then Instagram, and now TikTok. Perfect Blue's idea of Mima's Room, which starts as one website run by one stalker, has grown today into an entire network of obsession. The same demand for perfection in our internet personas fuels influencer culture, as they show off their perfect faces, fashion, pets and lives, in the vain hope that us normies will revel in our anxieties long enough to buy a particular brand of makeup or change our hair in some way. Basically, what I'm saying is everything on the internet is fake. Literally everything. 
And I mentioned earlier about Darren Aronofsky, and I said that I was going to come back to him. Now, Darren Aronofsky, there's a rumour that he acquired the rights to Perfect Blue, and that pops upon the internet now and then as a piece of trivia about Perfect Blue. Well, the truth is, according to an interview with Satoshi Kon, that it almost happened, but it didn't. Kon mentioned in a 2001 interview, this is from a Google translation of that interview, so apologies for any inaccuracies with the text. Quote, at the time, I asked him about the right to remake Perfect Blue, but he said he was not able to acquire it due to various circumstances. He still says he wants to do a remake, and his second film, Requiem for a Dream, uses the exact same angles and content cuts as Perfect Blue, and you can see the influence everywhere. There was a part, and I was a little embarrassed looking at it. He also said that it was a tribute to Perfect Blue, but I was even more embarrassed. I never thought that my directing work could inspire other creators, and this was also an unexpected pleasure, unquote. Aronofsky would go on to deny that his film Black Swan was inspired by Perfect Blue, but acknowledged the similarities between the two. Both stories have a female protagonist and have many of the same plot themes. Both individuals are placed in extremely stressful conditions that cause them to doubt who they are and finally cause them to imagine a doppelganger who causes psychological damage. Mima is forced to deal with the rigorous demands of being a Japanese idol, just as Nina is burdened by the pressures of being a ballerina. Their professional lives spin out of control as a result of their personal difficulties seeping into their work lives. It manifests as Nina's controlling mother in her case and as an obsessive stalker fan in Nima's. After being constrained to an innocent image imposed on them by their closest friends and family members, both of the female characters eventually experience a sexual awakening. Both of the movie's characters are engaged in a psychological struggle with themselves that gives rise to hallucinations that straddle the border between fact and fiction. And one character is called Nina, and the other is Mima. This is no slight to Black Swan, by the way, which I actually really liked. I think Natalie Portman is great in it. But there really is no denying the influence there. And exactly the same with Christopher Nolan and Inception being similar to Paprika. If you've ever seen Satoshi Kon's final movie, Paprika, there's a lot of similarities between the two there as well. The majority of Satoshi Kon's works are centred on the connection between identity and one's performance of oneself. He looked at how we interact with the internet, as well as entertainment, our jobs and our dreams, and he anticipated how it would open up a previously unheard of realm of performance, one that would genuinely permit a person to construct a persona distinct from their public self in a variety of ways. Naturally, the following logical query is whether the public or online self is the real self. And this is obviously the question that we keep coming back to in Perfect Blue. And the question that you're probably asking of me right now, well, which is the real M? Is it the verbal diorama M or is it the one that's not verbal diorama? And I guess, unless you know me in real life, you're never going to know. But one man who knows all about distinct personas and which self he truly is, is Keanu Reeves. And we're going to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. This is the part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. For no reason other than he is the best of men and he always deserves a bit of a mention in every episode. This is a really tough one because how on earth am I going to link Keanu Reeves to Perfect Blue? And really the only way that I could think of doing it was in Perfect Blue, Mima goes from being a pop star to being an actor. And 
Keanu Reeves started out as an actor and sort of became a pop star, but not really a pop star, more of like a rock star. Sort of the same thing, but like reversed. That was literally the only thing I could think of because obviously he was with his band Dogstar for several years. But obviously he never quit acting. So it's not like he swapped one career for another. He just did both. But that was really all I could think of. So I would say it's probably not the greatest obligatory Keanu reference in the world. But, you know, sometimes they're not great. Sometimes the verbal diorama persona just can't think of a decent obligatory Keanu reference and just has to go with whatever comes to mind. Even before Perfect Blue was finished, Rex Entertainment, the firm that bought the video and television rights to the movie, was so impressed with it, they encouraged the distributor to screen the movie at the Fantasia International Film Festival in Montreal, Canada, so that it might be released in other countries first. It screened out of competition because by the time the movie was finished, the deadline for entry had passed. And for this release, they marketed the movie as the directorial debut of Satoshi Kon. And they specifically mentioned that Kon was a student of the creator of Akira, Katsuhiro Otomo, because Katsuhiro Otomo had already achieved international success. Otomo is listed as a planning partner in the movie, but he actually wasn't involved in the process of making Perfect Blue at all. The screening at the Fantasia International Film Festival went so well that a second screening was arranged and the film would be voted Best International Film. That success led to Perfect Blue being distributed to Spain, France, Italy and Germany, as well as the UK and the US. Filmmakers Roger Corman and Irving Kirshner would consent for the distributors to use their testimonials in promoting the movie without charge anywhere in the world and their glowing reviews were used in global advertising, promotions, and on cinema flyers. Perfect Blue's premiere on the 5th of August 1997 at the Fantasia Film Festival would lead to a general release in Japan on the 28th of February 1998, and in the US on the 20th of August 1998, where it grossed $763,500. Perfect Blue would cost 90 million yen, that's roughly $830,000, in 2015 money but finding the Japanese box office gross for it has been really tough actually there's no information on box office mojo there's nothing on the numbers just worldwide numbers which are $768,050 total it would gross $4,532 just here in the UK so while we don't actually know if Perfect Blue was much of a financial success in its home nation Critically, it was and is a success. It's got an 83% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus states, Perfect Blue is overstylized, but its core mystery is always compelling, as are the visual theatrics. Time included Perfect Blue on its top five anime film list. Total Film ranked it 25th on their list of greatest animated films. Slash Film named it as the scariest animated film ever. It also made the list for Entertainment Weekly's best movies never seen from 1991 to 2011. In 2022, IndieWire named Perfect Blue the 12th best movie of the 1990s. Even Madonna is a fan. She incorporated clips from Perfect Blue into a remix of her song, What It Feels Like for a Girl, as a video interlude for her Drowned World Tour in 2001. And I mentioned the novel earlier. There are no sequels to Perfect Blue, but there are two novels that are available. 
There's the 1991 novel Perfect Blue Complete Metamorphosis and a 2002 anthology sequel called Perfect Blue Awakened from a Dream. They were acquired by Seven Seas Entertainment in April 2017 and in February and April of 2018 respectively they were released so I'm sure you could find them in an online bookstore of your choice. Let's move on to some social media thoughts. I like to ask on Patreon and on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook what people think of the movie that I'm covering. And we're going to start with the patrons. And we're going to start with Pete. And Pete says, After hearing the hype and so many best of lists praising it, I finally caught up with Perfect Blue just last year. Wonderfully layered and complex storytelling and characters that are deep enough that you really care about the consequences. A real mind trip that makes you feel dirty whilst watching. Perfect movie to reference in the animation is a medium, not a genre discussion. And when a patron does have their own podcast, I like to mention their podcast and give it a bit of a plug. So Pete hosts, along with Joseph and Tyler, Middle Class Film Class. They are a weekly movie news and reviews podcast. Always so fun to listen to. I'll pop some information in the show notes for Middle Class Film Class. We also have a patron comment from Andy, perennial commenter Andy, who says, Ah, Perfect Blue. It's a movie. A movie that came out. A movie I haven't seen yet. A movie I should probably watch. Technically, it's not really a comment about the movie. But, Andy, you should definitely watch this movie because I think you will really enjoy it. Definitely not one to watch with the kids. Maybe when they're a bit older. But one to watch with the wife, a movie that you will walk away from with probably more questions than answers, but a movie that definitely warrants a discussion afterwards as to what you take from the movie, how the movie makes you feel. And obviously, let me know if and when you do ever watch Perfect Blue. But obviously, Andy also has his own podcast. It is called Geek Salad. They probably haven't done an episode on Perfect Blue or mentioned Perfect Blue because Andy's never seen Perfect Blue. But they do have episodes on all sorts of different things, including Japanese anime, all sorts of animation, basically anything geeky, movies, music, TV shows, games, anything you can think of. It'll be on Geek Salad. I will put information in the show notes for them. And the final patron comment comes from Brendan, who says, Perfect Blue is both a sympathetic portrait of a young woman trying to make it as an actor and a primal scream about the commodification of people in the entertainment industry, still damning in its prescience internet fandom and entitlement, and a marvel of animated editing. Let's move over to Twitter, and we're going to start with at ChatsunamiPod, who said, A surprisingly poignant portrayal of idol culture and its inherent dangers. I was really surprised about how the film seems relevant even today. Definitely a classic psychological horror film. And SP underscore film viewers said, I own this amazing looking collector's edition from At All The Anime, but I'm ashamed to say I haven't watched it yet. Definitely need to sort that out. Heard nothing but positive things about it, though. At the 80s movie pod said, Satoshi Kon was the greatest anime storyteller after, of course, Miyazaki. And while Perfect Blue is not my favourite con, that would be Millennium Actress, it's a masterpiece that sets an incredibly high bar for the next gen of anime storytellers Rarely matched after 25 years. At And Why Not Pod said, A stunningly good-looking movie and a fantastic thriller, sadly one that is overlooked by many for being, quote, a cartoon. Looking forward to listening to this one. 
at the Cultworthy said, Love it. Our episode on it is one of our highest. So influential. At Callum underscore H underscore Cooper said, It's one of Con's best and one of my favourite horrors. It's visually striking and brilliantly nightmarish with rich themes of voyeurism, psychosis and crisis of identity, among others. I actually think it's scarier now than when it initially came out. Terrific film. At Dark Bitch Pod said, No one cracks the egg of reality quite like Satoshi Kon. From the jump, he was the master of transitions. At Vincent Asher said, I was blown away when I bought the DVD on release. The story starts well-hearted, then spirals into a mind F of misdirection. The animation is clean, defined and beautiful. The characters are well thought out and relatable. A college paper could be written about this movie. At Weary Gizabal said, To start, my co-host and I did a whole, like, 45-minute breakdown for this. Great film. I recommend our video. Secondly, this is without a doubt the greatest piece of animation Japan has produced. It's one that's influenced more than even Kira. At Finner Instinct said, It would be the greatest anime ever if Ghost in the Shell didn't exist. At Mike B 196 said, Great choice, Em. It's a superb film. At one point, it seems to forget about the plot and just veers off on mad tangents, not knowing what's real, as though, like the main character, the movie is going through a breakdown. It's the film Black Swan would kill to be. And no comments on either Instagram or Facebook for Perfect Blue, which is disappointing, but not completely unexpected. A huge thank you to everyone for their comments on Perfect Blue, to the patrons and to those on Twitter. And if you would like your comments read out in episodes, then all you need to do is comment on the thoughts posts that go up on social media. They go up on a Friday now, and they're only up for about 24 hours. So on a Friday, you'll see a post about the latest episode. Put your comment on that post, and I will read it out in the next episode. So find me on social media, at Verbal Diorama, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. And do that, and I will read your stuff out. And I will also credit you in the episode. When Perfect Blue came out... No one knew what to make of it at first. It was unique. There was nothing like it. And if you compare it to Princess Mononoke, which came out the same year, and is a similar masterpiece, actually, I still think Princess Mononoke is Miyazaki's masterpiece, Perfect Blue was something else. It was a Japanese animated film that eschewed beautiful fantasy landscapes and loud action in favour of a psychologically complex story deeply rooted in horror-tinged social commentary. On its release, some critics disliked it and didn't believe that animation was the correct medium for a thriller. But over time, it's become widely revered for pushing the boundaries of animation to show that animation is not just for children and never just a cartoon. You can't dispute the perfect loose themes on celebrity culture, female autonomy, the commodification of women's bodies, online harassment and mental health are even more relevant today than they were in 1997. It's a crime, actually, that Perfect Blue isn't more well-known, that Satoshi Kon isn't as revered as highly as Hayao Miyazaki, for example, in the West. Satoshi Kon died far too young, and his final project, Dreaming Machine, sat in limbo at Madhouse with only 600 of the 1,500 shots animated. With no director found to complete his final film, as of 2016, producer Masayo Maruyama didn't want an established name to take over and for it to become their work instead of Con's work. It's not completely dead, but chances are looking slim that Dreaming Machine will ever be finished.
It's hard not to be sad when you realise what animation could have become had Satoshi Kon lived and if he was still working today. We'd have more animation mirroring real life, exposing rampant misogyny, abuse and the commodification of women, not only in the entertainment industry, but by other women. Let's not forget, the main antagonist of this story isn't Mimania, but a woman Mima is supposed to trust, her manager. This is a woman who gaslights her, tries to control her, and lives through her vicariously until Mima chooses to forge her own path. You look at Satoshi Kon's short but vivid career and realise that sometimes life's too short. Just like Mima, you should embrace whatever it is you want to do, and you should be free to do that. Perfect Blue is a glimpse into our own unperfect world. That yes, there is darkness in the world, but there's also light. That we can take control of our own destinies. We can conquer our demons. And in the melancholia surrounding Satoshi Kon's untimely death, he believed in the happiest of endings. That Mima is the real thing. Or is she? Well, we can say for certain that Satoshi Kon was. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Perfect Blue. And by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. If you did want to do more things absolute free, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Spotify, leave a rating or review wherever you found it. You can follow me at Verbal Diorama. You can retweet or like posts that I've put up on social media. That also helps too. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast. And if you did like this episode on Perfect View specifically, I would like to recommend the following movies slash episodes to you that you may also like. I've mentioned it several times, actually. The episode that I did for Akira, which is way back episode 28 of this podcast. It's one of my favourite movies ever. And you can really understand why when they were marketing Perfect Blue that they really wanted to bring Akira into the conversation because Akira was something that was a phenomenon in the late 80s. And of course, you're going to want to reference that for your movie. Really, they're nothing alike apart from the fact that they both were made in Japan. But they are two stunningly beautiful movies. And if you've not had the chance to watch Akira, then you're missing out on something incredible. You should absolutely watch that movie. And episode 80 was an an episode that I did on Ghost in the Shell, which again is such an inspirational movie, especially when you look at Hollywood. It's very well known that Ghost in the Shell was a reference point for The Matrix with its style and its visuals. And it's something that the Wachowskis have admitted to in several interviews that they love Ghosts in the Shell and they wanted to pay homage to it in some way. Exactly the same way as Darren Aronofsky wanted to pay homage to Perfect Blue in his movies. Again, Ghosts in the Shell, subject-wise, is really nothing like Perfect Blue at all. But as landmark of animation, landmark of Japanese cinema, there is nothing really that matches Ghost in the Shell for really being genre-defining sci-fi. So those would be my two recommendations. I have extensively covered the work of Hayao Miyazaki on this podcast. However, I don't really think it's appropriate to recommend Miyazaki's work when you're talking about a movie like Perfect Blue. 
obviously give me feedback. Let me know what you think of my recommendations. The next episode, going to something very light and very funny, very British, actually. We're going to Ardman and to a little movie that they made that has different titles depending on where you saw the movie. Now, here in the UK, the movie is called The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. But if you're in the United States of America, Australia or New Zealand, it's called The Pirates Band of Misfits. It is an incredibly funny stop motion movie. It's got some great visual gags all about a pirate and his quest to win Pirate of the Year. It's also one of those movies that I feel is ever so slightly underappreciated, even though technically it is the fourth highest grossing stop motion animated movie of all time. It's one of those movies that people don't really remember or talk about. So I wanted to talk about the pirates in an adventure with scientists. So join me next week for the history and legacy of the pirates in an adventure with scientists. Like I say, totally, totally different to Perfect Blue in every way. As I mentioned, just by listening, you are supporting this podcast. And I'm very grateful for that. And you don't need to do anything else. But if you do want to support this podcast financially, you can sign up to the Patreon at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon, and you can join the amazing patrons of this podcast. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu and Brett. None of whom are me, Mania, I don't think. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me. You can email verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is just verbaldiorama.com. You can also find me and the things that I do over at filmstories.co.uk. You can buy issues of the magazine that I write for and also articles that I write online as well. And finally... Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer 1, trailer 2. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. 
How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy. All That's right. Awesome. You're going full Danzig. That's right, I am. My my trans you have no power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>